0: From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Uh,
1: The Russians are not our friends.
0: That's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at a recent press conference. He's one of a bipartisan group of senators calling for a formal investigation into CIA and other intelligence agency assessments that Russia interfered in the U.S. presidential election, including the possibility that Russia tried to tilt the scales in favor of Donald Trump. While there appears to be disagreement within the intelligence community about that particular allegation, there does not appear to be any disagreement about the significance of Russia's meddling in the election. Senator John McCain speaking on CBS.
2: The facts are there about Russian behavior and Russian not just hacking into the United States 2016 election campaign, but throughout the world.
0: From its cyber attacks to its invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, its military intervention in Syria, and its subversion of NATO allies, Russia's assertion of power seems only to be growing. That has led to mounting bipartisan anti-Russian sentiment on the Hill, which seems to put Congress on a collision course with President-elect Donald Trump. Speaking with Fox News, Trump dismissed the intelligence community's assessments.
2: I think it's ridiculous. I think it's just another excuse. Uh, I don't believe it.
0: Trump has further upset lawmakers who want to see a tougher approach toward Moscow with his nomination of Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State. As Exxon CEO, Tillerson developed close relations with Russian President Vladimir Putin and criticized Western sanctions against Russia for its actions in Ukraine. Today on America Abroad, we take a deep look into the U.S. relationship with Russia at the dawn of the Trump presidency. Will the Trump administration, led by the president and his secretary of state, reach out to Russia in an effort to build a new, more cooperative relationship? Would an accommodation with Russia put America's allies in Europe at risk and further embolden Russian President Vladimir Putin? To understand how he and many Russians see the world, we'll examine its post-Soviet history. We'll travel into the heart of the To see which issues are most pressing for today's Russians, we'll examine how Putin has diverted attention away from failed policies at home to military victories abroad. And we'll talk about the effects of Russia's cyber invasions, widespread hacking, media propaganda, and the dissemination of fake news.
3: If you are immersed in the Russian domestic media, especially watch Russian television, the Russians believe that they're practically at war with the United States.
0: Leon Aaron, director of Russian studies at the American Enterprise Institute.
3: Putin's popularity ratings were at their lowest at the end of 2013. And then came the annexation of Crimea, the proxy war in Ukraine, a series of very effective military political moves in Syria, and now we have the popularity at over 80%. So this foreign policy is dictated by Putin's domestic political calculus.
0: Jim Ludis runs the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy. He says Russia's strategy is to make liberal democracies look weak.
4: One of the things that Russia is really trying to accomplish here is to undermine the political process and the reputation of the United States as a bastion of the liberal world order. And in doing so, it strengthens Russia's hand in the near abroad. It undermines NATO. It weakens a whole host of international institutions that the United States is the most important player in. Uh, So a weakened United States, a politically fragmented United States, that serves Russia's interests. And I think that that's what this is all about.
0: But with Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin believes he may have an American president who shares some of his views about NATO and the Western political order.
4: What President-elect Trump has indicated is a greater alignment in terms of his foreign policy preferences and Russia's preferences.
5: When Donald Trump comes out and says, I'm going to be friends with Putin, he's a great guy, Russians are loving that.
0: Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School in New York. She says there are signs longstanding Russian resentment might be waning in the wake of the Trump victory. Trump
5: fits into some sort of view of the possible American leader who is going to respect Russia. He's going to recognize the strengths of Russia. And they love that.
0: But even before the latest news of hacking, a majority in Congress appeared to be wary of Trump's overtures to Putin, including Republican Lindsey Graham, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, who didn't mince words when he spoke to CBS this past October.
6: I see Putin as a dictator. He's destroyed every semblance of democracy in his own country.
7: This policy of having good relations, as looks like Mr. Trump is going on to have, is the best way to increase the number of people being killed uh, in many places around the world.
0: Andrey Ilarionov is a former economic advisor to Vladimir Putin and is now senior fellow at the Libertarian Cato Institute. He says miscalculating Putin would be a mortal mistake.
7: We have harassment, bidding, jailing of many people. Many people have been murdered, like Boris Nemtsov, one of the leaders of opposition, or Anna Politkovskaya, a famous journalist, and many other cases. And along with this, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Syria. And those people in the West, uh, if they think trying to make good deals with uh, the current uh, Kremlin would stop Kremlin from more attacks, they are deeply mistaken.
0: But not everyone sees the Trump presidency in such dire terms. Some say Trump's views on Russia may evolve. And Jim Ludis of the Pell Center says Trump's conciliatory approach might work.
4: A greater alignment does not mean that he has been co-opted by Russia. What it means is that he has made a decision that stability is the most important aspect of the international order that he wants to work with Russia to advance.
0: Bill Courtney is a fellow at the RAND Corporation. He also served as a diplomat to Russia under President Bill Clinton. He says given the right approach, real gains can be made in areas of mutual interest. And he points to ISIS as an example.
6: More fighters from the Islamic State are going to be returning home to Russia and Central Asia and other countries around Russia. Uh, the Russians probably would benefit if the West cooperated with it in tracking some of those fighters to try to prevent them from carrying out future attacks. Russia's a big, important
8: country. We have to find ways to cooperate.
0: David Satter covered Russia for The Wall Street Journal and The Financial Times. He's also written four books about Russia.
8: But we should cooperate and agree on matters. That affect us both on the basis of a realistic understanding of what Russia is and what the regime is. We shouldn't fool ourselves, shouldn't lie to ourselves, lie to others and lie to the Russian people about the true nature of the Russian regime. We should be aware of it.
0: During the Cold War, Russia was America's mortal enemy, in real life and in fiction. In the 1980s, President Reagan called the world's other nuclear power an evil empire.
8: Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world.
0: And in movies, Russians were always the bad guy.
3: My name is Tarago. Soon I fight Rocky Balboa, and the world will
2: see his defeat.
0: Kevin Close teaches journalism at the University of Maryland and was the Washington Post's Moscow bureau chief from 1977 to 1981, where he saw what life was really like behind the Iron Curtain.
2: There were foreign radio stations trying to transmit fact-based journalism into the country They were largely blocked or jammed. The Soviet Union had the longest closed border in the history of humanity, all across the border with China and all across the border through the Middle East and out across Eastern Europe and then all the way up to the Arctic Circle.
0: And inside those walls, the United States was constantly demonized, says Leon Aaron.
3: For all its repression, for all its impoverishment, the people of the Soviet Union felt that these are sacrifices to uphold a very special status of their country, which is a superpower which is militarily, politically, and morally a counterbalance to the United States.
0: By the 1980s, cracks were appearing in the facade. Citizens began to clamor for more freedom. By the end of the decade, Russia was under a new president, Mikhail Gorbachev, who adopted a new idea called perestroika. Will Pomerantz is deputy director of the Kennan Institute for Advanced Russian Studies at the Wilson Center.
9: Perestroika was the policy that Gorbachev introduced in 1986 and 87 to begin to reform the Soviet system and particularly the Soviet economy. Perestroika later became more associated with broader political reforms. But that really wasn't Gorbachev's intention when he started it. He thought that he could contain those reforms and use them to change the Soviet system. What he soon discovered was that they would overwhelm the Soviet system.
0: The fall of East Berlin was just one of many events shaking up the Soviet Union during that time. One by one, Warsaw Pact countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia broke from the Soviet bloc. And in Russia, too, there were promising signs of political and economic change. Again, Kevin
2: Close. In the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were free and relatively fair elections. And an independent Dumas with a number of suddenly risen and created political parties emerged that had an opposition to the leadership. But there was tumultuous times, and there was also a tremendous economic collapse. Uh, the expectations of people that, quote, democracy, such as they understood it, would bring them immediately a new kind of life. It did not occur that way, and it doesn't occur that way. Democracy is something you have to work at every day, and you've got to have some knowledge of how it's structured.
0: Under new president Boris Yeltsin, Russia continued in the 1990s to try to open its economy, a policy the United States backed. But journalist David Satter notes that Yeltsin's government was corrupt.
8: And as Yeltsin became more and more odious, our support for him made the United States more and more unpopular, and the very concept of democracy more and more unpopular because we misdefined it. We treated Fixed elections, a corrupt economic reform process, and the rule of oligarchs, uh, and complete lawlessness as if this was democracy.
9: There was a genuine attempt to engage with Russia and to assist in the transition of Russia. The reality is the United States never committed the resources. It never brought a Marshall Plan to Russia that could definitively change Russia.
0: For many in Russia, the economic collapse was both devastating and humiliating, as was the expansion of NATO eastwards during the 1990s.
3: In the Spanish capital Madrid today, the political and military leaders of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, including President Clinton, certainly stretched the boundaries. In its most dramatic decision since its creation after World War II, the alliance has formally asked Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, all of them once under Soviet domination and thus in the enemy camp, to join the West,
0: But the Clinton administration tried to reassure Russians. In 1997, Russia signed an agreement with NATO, a roadmap for NATO-Russia cooperation. President Bill Clinton spoke at the White House.
8: It is possible to enlarge NATO, to maintain its effectiveness as the most successful defense alliance in history, to strengthen our partnership with Russia, and to do all this in a way that advances our common objectives of freedom and human rights and peace and prosperity.
0: Two years later, the war in Kosovo increased the tension between Russia and NATO. President Yeltsin was furious about NATO's actions in the former Yugoslavia. This case uh, is a most gross error by Americans, American diplomacy and Clinton, a grossest error. And they will be held eventually accountable for As NATO advanced, Russians saw this as a threat to their sovereignty and to their power, says Kevin Close.
2: There were people saying, how did we lose our empire? What happened to us? And now the borders of the unknown and uncontrollable are much closer to us than they ever were before under the old times.
0: Amid this period of uncertainty, Vladimir Putin stepped in. He swiftly rose to power from relative obscurity he cemented that power when Chechen separatists were accused of bombing apartment buildings in 1999. Here's journalist David Satter.
8: The first apartment building was blown up in Bryansk, in Dagestan, and then two apartment buildings were blown up in Moscow in the middle in five o'clock in the morning, killing people as they in their beds as they slept. Uh, those bombings created mass panic. Vladimir Putin, who had just been appointed premier and who was virtually unknown. Suddenly, using prison slang, he said, we'll find the terrorists wherever they are. He captured the thirst for revenge of the population, and he successfully changed the subject of political discourse in the country.
0: He wrote a populist message of restoring pride to Russia, says the New School's Nina Khrushcheva.
5: People are struggling economically. People have problems, people have issues, but Putin put Russia back on the map where it belongs. It's the global power. It's the power you cannot ignore, which is very important to the Russians.
0: At the time, America also elected a new leader, George W. Bush, who, after meeting Putin, assured Americans he was trustworthy.
5: I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Uh, and I appreciate it so very much, the frank dialogue.
0: Putin himself seemed ready to embrace the United States. Andrei Ilyanov was an economic advisor to Putin at the time.
7: From 2000 to 2003, many members of the Russian administration did work intensively to bring Russia to the standards of international community.
0: Will Pomerantz of the Wilson Center says it was a period where Putin exhibited more faith in the United States.
9: Putin generally thought that he could utilize a relationship with the United States to somehow restore Russia's position as a major player in global governance. And I think over time, Putin made a decision that he wasn't going to go along with it anymore.
0: Despite U.S. efforts to engage with and integrate Russia into institutions like the G8 and the WTO, Putin began to take a more confrontational stance. During a 2007 speech in Munich, he made it clear he no longer believed Russian acquiescence to the Western world order would return Russia to global prominence.
9: He basically said that I've reached out and have not gotten any positive response. And therefore, I'm no longer going to continue to give my hand if all I'm I'm getting is a cold shoulder. I'm going to have to find my own ways of reasserting Russia's position in the world.
0: Those words were soon followed by action. In 2008, Russia sent its military into the former Soviet Republic of Georgia.
1: It's intensifying and becoming more brutal. The war between Russia and Georgia spills out of South Ossetia. Tens of thousands have been
9: forced from their homes.
0: Russia said it was defending Russian separatists, but many members of Congress and other Western leaders called it an invasion.
9: There are various statements at the time of the invasion, such as John McCain's, where he says, we're all Georgian now. That clearly is not the goal of the Bush administration.
0: But no action was taken.
9: The clear lesson was that the United States may voice solidarity, but it wasn't going to actually do anything if it felt there was a risk of directly confronting Russia in the post-Soviet space.
0: By the next year both Russia and the United States were led by new presidents. Putin had reached his term limit, but he maintained much of his influence as he ran for prime minister in 2008 and handpicked party loyalist Dmitry Medvedev to be his successor. Newly elected President Obama offered what he called a reset.
6: Indeed I firmly believe that America's most significant national security interests and priorities could be advanced most effectively through cooperation. Uh, not an adversarial relationship with Russia.
0: But as Obama discovered, easier said than done. Bill Courtney is a former diplomat to Russia.
6: Well, the last three presidents, uh, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama, have all tried resets at the beginning of their administrations. In the end, they've all led to some disappointments, even though some achievements occurred along the way. So under Obama, for example, uh, the New START Treaty, a Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, Uh, Was achieved, and then also Russia agreed to provide logistical support to NATO forces in Afghanistan. So there were some achievements from the Obama reset, even though, in the end, uh, primarily because of Russian domestic politics, Russia has turned against uh, the West.
0: The Arab Spring and its aftermath led to further disagreement between Russia and the United States. Populist uprisings caused leaders to fall in Tunisia and Egypt, and then Libya, an ally of Russia, descended into civil war. The United States and Europe looked to the U.N. Security Council for approval to topple Libya's leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and Russia's Medvedev chose not to stand in the way.
9: Russia never abstains when one of its own satellite countries is under threat it never had before, and I think Putin was really shocked that that had happened.
0: A year later, Putin was reelected president, but Russia's economy was not doing well. Leon Aaron of the American Enterprise Institute says Putin chose to distract Russians with his foreign policy.
3: When the economy is not growing, you go for patriotic mobilization. You create a situation where the fear of external aggression and the fear of war becomes so important that people are swept in what might be called, you know, warmongering hysteria. And uh, that's precisely what happened.
0: But those calculations have come at a cost. In 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, Russia was removed from the powerful bloc of industrialized nations known as the G8. The EU and the US teamed up to impose economic sanctions in response to Russia's actions in Ukraine and Crimea. And NATO had taken steps to reinforce its presence in the Baltic states in an effort to deter future Russian moves. Now, Donald Trump will take office with greater tensions between the U.S. and Russia than at any time since the Cold War. So what should be done? While the Trump administration might manage to improve relations with Russia, the Atlantic Council's Jeff Gedman believes the best approach for the United States and Europe when it comes to Russia is to push back.
3: Vladimir Putin, if he's successful in dividing Europe into two spheres of influence, in weakening and dividing and fragmenting the European Union, in rendering NATO, our key alliance, obsolete, in playing with Iran in the greater Middle East and Persian Gulf to push the United States bit by bit out of the region, if that is the world that emerges in three or five or ten years, does that help American security? I say no. Does that help American prosperity? I say no. It's not worked historically. Highly unlikely it's going to work today or tomorrow.
0: Coming up, a look at Russians living outside Moscow to see how Putin's policies are playing there. Many Russians said to me, OK, we're
5: suffering, but it's all your fault, the West— And we need
0: to be self-sufficient. For more on this program, including a personal story on what it's like to be a journalist working in Russia, check out our website at PRI.org. From Public Radio International, you're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Sometimes we forget just how big Russia is. It has the largest landmass of any country in the world. Most of the news the West hears comes from Moscow. But according to Ann Garrels, NPR's former Russia correspondent, if you only hang out there, you'll never get a good sense of what most Russians are thinking. In her book, Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia, Geralds writes about her quest to understand what really makes Russians tick. And she's here now to share some of what she's found. Welcome. Thank you. Well, what is the real Russia? Is it not Moscow? It is definitely not Moscow.
5: Moscow is L.A., Washington, New York, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, all wrapped into one. And the rest of the country is pretty gritty and industrial, and pretty much like Middle America, frankly. And if you had ignored um, sort of Middle America in this election, I figured in 1993 that we were missing out on what people were going through out in the provinces of Russia and not understanding just how wounded and how devastated they were by the collapse of the Soviet Union, the economic collapse, the collapse of everything they knew. And I think that we underestimated, you know, how serious the identity crisis was in Russia. And that's why in 93, I decided I was going to choose one place way outside of Moscow, a thousand miles east in the middle of the country, a gritty industrial city called Chelyabinsk. And I was going to follow it. I was going to go there every year. And even when I was in Iraq, I continued to go there every year. And then since I retired, I've been there several months a year. And it was really instructive. Chelyabinsk is not Moscow. It is overwhelmingly pro-Putin. You know, Moscow's got a lot of money. The provinces don't. Describe Chelyabinsk. What is it like?
0: Who are the people there?
5: It's sort of a typical Russian provincial city of a million and a half. It's totally polluted. It depended on military industrial complex and on steel. There have been no real environmental improvements. Initially in the 90s, people romantic about being part of the world because, like most of Russia, two-thirds of Russia, until the breakup of the Soviet Union, were closed to outsiders. So Chelyabin suddenly and is not just part of a new Russia, but it's thrown into being competitive with the rest of the world, a world it doesn't know because it's been closed to the rest of the world since the Stalin years. But they had this romantic idea that they could be like the West— American missionaries flooded the place, and they got huge audiences. People were questioning, wondering, but eventually they got sick of looking at the past and beating up on themselves, and they started to say, okay, what's good about us? Wait a minute. And also they saw NATO encroaching on Russia's borders. And even though the West never promised not to expand NATO, it did promise not to take advantage of a suffering Russia. And Russians began to feel that, wait a minute, we are being taken advantage of. Our views, whether it's on Serbia or Kosovo or... Iraq. Our views are never taken into account. The U.S. just runs over us. And what's more, they're moving NATO to our borders. And so there was a real feeling of, whoa, wait just a minute.
0: And so along comes Vladimir Putin, and he has been in power for many, many years now. Is his popularity waning at all, or is it just getting stronger?
5: his popularity so far is not waning but i'd say it's iffy and i keep asking russians where are the red lines is it the internet well putin's been very clever he's taken over the mainstream media but the internet's more or less free but if you get too many likes and uh, you become too popular too much of a threat then the tax police will certainly be on your door A friend of mine, for instance, refused to go to a Putin rally. Uh, She was a government employee working for a museum. And her bosses punished her by sort of cutting off her internet and putting her in a basement office. There were many people like that. But the opposition is fractured. Even though Putin has done his best to cripple them, they've also crippled themselves. And then you say, well, the economy, because of sanctions, the economy isn't doing well. People's incomes have dropped drastically in the last couple of years, but they seem to be tolerating it. Many Russians said to me, okay, we're suffering, but it's all your fault, the West, and we need to be self-sufficient. And if we need to tighten our belts, then so be it, so that we can develop our industries— and develop agriculture.
0: When you're talking about the sanctions, you're talking about the Western sanctions that were put into place after Russia went into Ukraine. Well, I'm
5: talking about actually two sanctions. One were the Western sanctions, but then Putin put sanctions on the import of many Western foodstuffs. I mean, the grocery stores where people have become used to getting Western cheeses and you name it, that's not there anymore. And that also meant that food prices went up. But amazingly, given all of this, the cut in salaries, the rise in food prices, the
0: growing poverty of many people, Putin remains popular. Let me just ask you uh, one other thing, and that is the resurgence of white nationalism. We've seen that during this campaign, and do you see echoes in Russia in terms of uh, you know, racial and identity politics?
5: That whole issue of white nationalism is very clear in Russia. Russians feel threatened by their own Muslim underbelly. There's a huge Muslim population in the southern part of the country, and indeed even in Chelyabinsk, where Muslims predated the Russians. I remember being in a police department in Chilyavins, where I had been called in, and they looked at me and they said, God, you're being overwhelmed just like us by little brown people. And they were talking about, you know, the Mexican border. And at that point, there was a big issue about immigrants coming from Central America. You know, they sort of went, we share your feelings and your fears.
0: Wow. Anne Gerrals, she's the author of the book Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia. Anne, thank you. Well, thank you. We head now to Moscow, where Donald Trump's victory has many Russians enthusiastic for a new era in U.S.-Russia cooperation. As Charles Maines reports, this new hope is tempered by concerns over the state of the country's struggling economy.
1: Like most of the world, Anna Pogravinkova was surprised by Donald Trump's victory in the US presidential race, and like most Russians, she also welcomed the news.
5: I was quite happy.
1: A school teacher in Moscow, Pogravinkova counts herself a fan of Russian president Vladimir Putin.
3: I happy that we have strong
5: president.
1: And so for her, a Hillary Clinton presidency meant four more years of guaranteed acrimony between Putin and the White House. She says a Trump administration's course may be far less clear, but it would certainly be something different. And that alone makes Trump the better choice for Russians.
3: With Donald Trump, maybe it will change something for better. Maybe he will stop these quarrels and we'll do something together, hand in hand.
1: There is little doubt that Russia's elite have welcomed the news of a Trump presidency. Russia's Duma notoriously broke out into applause upon hearing of Trump's victory, which many see as their own. Candidate Trump, after all, has called for improved relations with Russia. On the campaign trail, he's also voiced support for Kremlin positions on issues of Russian national interest, such as in Ukraine and Syria, as well as the role of NATO in Eastern Europe. According to Maria Lipman, a Moscow-based analyst and editor of CounterPoint Journal, such statements have the Kremlin dreaming not only of an ally in the White House, but an end to Western sanctions that have deepened Russia's economic troubles, amid a downturn in world oil prices.
5: If Americans are no longer so insistent on sanctions and so uh, persuasive uh, vis-à-vis Europe, then this may be the yearn-for miracle that might help uh, the Russian economy, if not to rise,
10: but at least to stop the decline.
2: Они <laughs> сказали Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Paskov
1: is among those cheering on the prospects for Russian-American detente. In an interview with state television, he went out of his way to praise similarities in Putin and Trump's approaches to foreign policy as outright phenomenal. And polls here reflect the change in tone. If anti-Americanism surged to levels not seen since the Cold War during the Obama years, a majority of Russians, some 70 percent, now suddenly want better relations with the West.
3: What the Kremlin is after is the reaffirmation of respect from the United States, from the Trump administration, and they they viewed Obama and his administration as disrespectful.
1: Vladimir Frolov is a foreign policy analyst and a columnist with the Moscow Times. He says despite the usual policy differences, President Obama poisoned relations by denigrating Russia as a regional power with little to offer. Frolov says a Trump presidency won't have much to do to raise that bar. But he cautions there is a shelf life to the budding Putin-Trump bromance.
3: I give them a year, a year and a half of... Uh Relatively irrational exuberance in the relationship with uh, both uh, Washington and Moscow, exchanging pleasantries and uh, public uh, exhibitions of uh, personal respect. But uh, in a year, a year and a half, one of them invades some country, and you know the whole <laughs> the whole thing you know, starts all over again.
1: Frolov notes that as Russia's economy has struggled, Putin has maintained his popularity by turning to foreign adventures. For example, the annexation of Crimea, or Russia's military campaign in Syria, to mask limited achievements at home. And in this, even Russia's beleaguered opposition sees a silver lining in a Trump White House.
3: Putin already starts his uh, propaganda campaign that uh, Trump is not enemy, so it's uh, perfect. (laughs)
1: At a cafe in Moscow, Dmitry Stepanov and a group of activists are planning an anti-government protest, an act that's illegal here without permission from the authorities. Stepanov and his friends argue it's average Russians who pay the price for policies that have left Russia politically isolated and economically damaged.
3: Putin's regime uh, moved Russia towards uh, total disaster
1: Stepanov notes that as the ruble has collapsed in value and social programs have shrunk, Kremlin propaganda have put blame for Russian's woes squarely on the US but now with Trump and Putin appearing to search for common ground Stepanov says the US as boogeyman conspiracy no longer holds
3: Putin uh, needs to have a strong enemy uh, outside Russia. So they talk that the United States is responsible for for all our problems. Uh, If they will not have such possibility to put responsibility on somebody else besides themselves, it will be good because uh, Russian people will understand that in all our problems, Putin and his team are responsible.
7: President of the Russian Federation. Vladimir, Vladimirovich Putin.
1: Perhaps with that in mind, the Russian leader focused heavily on domestic issues during his recent State of the Nation address. Declaring that Russia sought friendships, not rivalries with the U.S. and other Western powers, Putin made the case to Russians that they'd successfully weathered the worst of the sanctions storm. Yet later that same day, Putin issued a new muscular foreign policy doctrine that blamed the crisis in Russia-West relations on Washington, suggesting the Russian leader was planning for any and all outcomes during Trump's years in the White House. For America Abroad, I'm Charles Maines in Moscow.
0: You're listening to U.S.-Russia relations in the Trump era on America Abroad. Coming up, could Latvia be the next Crimea? And if so, is America prepared to intervene against a Russian invasion?
2: We can unleash the fury, uh, the hammer of justice against uh, any adversary that we might come up against.
0: To join the conversation and see photos from our stories, find us on Twitter at America underscore abroad. You're listening to U.S. Russia relations in the Trump era on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. The Baltic states are among the countries Russia refers to as its near abroad. Russia coined the term after the collapse of the Soviet Union to describe those former Soviet republics. Well, now Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are all members of the European Union and NATO. But that doesn't stop Russian President Vladimir Putin from reminding those governments he has his eye on them. Terry Schultz took a trip to Latvia to find out how NATO is trying to protect the country. <laughs>
11: Independence Day celebrations in Latvia, as meaningful now as 25 years ago when the tiny Baltic state regained sovereignty from the unraveling Soviet Union. However, the prospect of U.S. President-elect Donald Trump becoming chummy with his Russian counterpart has led many observers to suggest this could be a zero-sum game. Bad news for Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, against whom Russian President Vladimir Putin definitely carries a grudge.
12: They were an example of how well you can do when you break away from Kremlin rule, and the Kremlin really hates that.
11: Ben Nimmo is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council who studies Kremlin disinformation campaigns. Nimmo expects the next few months will bring increased Russian efforts to destabilize the Baltic neighborhood and undermine NATO solidarity. He says that's unlikely to be with a physical attack, more like character assassination.
12: I think what we're going to see is attempts to portray the Baltic states everywhere else as as corrupt, as incompetent, as oppressive. I think we'll also hear more accusations from the Kremlin that NATO is being aggressive by moving reinforcements to the Baltics and that Russia has to take countermeasures to defend itself. So I think we'll see this building up of a narrative that the Baltics are troublemakers and they're not worth protecting. We've seen that for many years, but I'd expect it to get worse now.
11: Meanwhile, there are other assessments that World War III is imminent, with Latvia as ground zero. Such headlines have long ago grown tiresome for Latvian Foreign Minister Edgar Rinkovic, who notes he's navigated through several waves of prognostication that the next global military conflict will begin on his doorstep.
6: And I would uh, really suggest not to look at scenarios that we don't find plausible. The World War Three is not possible plausible scenario here. And that this is not going to be another Ukraine. It's not going to be, you know, the kind of uh, hotspot or... Problems, but, uh, for
11: Still, comparisons with Ukraine are not entirely the imagination of international media. A third of the Latvian population is ethnically Russian, and Putin occasionally announces he may need to intervene, including militarily, to protect their interests. That was his pretext before the annexation of Crimea in 2014, which Putin insisted was the wish of the Russian speakers there. Watching his troops drill with newly purchased combat vehicles, Latvian Major Uldis Gutmanis says the significance of the Crimea annexation can't be overstated.
3: Crimea changed our thinking about our future because we were very happy about what we have, but the Crimea shows that we need more strong uh, army, more uh, money we should invest in these uh, capabilities, and we should work together with uh, all NATO forces.
11: NATO itself was jolted into action, creating a rapid reaction force to more quickly respond to Russia's snap exercises, Popping up uncomfortably close to the alliance's borders at its July summit NATO approved the creation and deployment of standing battle groups of about a thousand international troops each to the Baltic states and Poland in addition units of a couple hundred members of the u.s 173rd airborne Brigade combat team have been exercising in each of those same buffer zone countries since the Crimean takeover <laughs> First Sergeant Christopher Riley is among the U.S. paratroopers practicing their aim on a long shooting range at the Araju training area, the largest in the Baltics. This used to be a valuable Soviet practice ground. Riley won't speculate on what kind of enemy the Americans may be preparing to fight, but he says it doesn't matter.
2: We can unleash the fury. Uh, the hammer of justice against uh, any adversary that we might come up
11: against. But there may be an even more serious threat to Latvia, one harder to target, the use of information as a weapon. Kremlin-funded media outlets such as Russia Today and Sputnik are heavily targeting Baltic-dwelling Russians with pro-Moscow propaganda.
3: The responsibility for this terrible tragedy, even without having started an investigation, was put upon Russia, which supports the People's Militia.
11: Antti Silenpa necessary. is with NATO's Strategic Communications Center of Excellence in Riga, a facility originally set up by the Latvians, which identifies and seeks ways to counter hostile narratives. Silenpa says these are dangerous incursions into the minds of the population.
7: I think if we look at what is the Kremlin's big view on this, is that they try to seed mistrust in these individual countries, but also among nations. And uh, if uh, there is more mistrust in these countries or there is mistrust uh, like towards, let's say, EU or NATO, then those organizations or those governments themselves, they are not as
2: efficient for their
7: citizens.
11: State Secretary for Defense Janis Garrisons puts an even sharper point on it.
2: When you, your society or your people uh, lose the trust in, in this country, a willingness to protect values, to protect your state, then you don't need military capabilities anymore, because uh, if your will is non-existent, then you you can beat your of battle.
11: But while there may be some residents of Latvia who can be persuaded by such tactics, there are growing numbers motivated to act against them. Some 8,000 Latvians have joined the National Guard. That's more than the 5,000 who are in the military. Among them are friends of Lina Zidana, who watched the U.S. elections with trepidation. She says her countrymen are very concerned that Russia will be empowered by the Trump victory. And they try to reassure themselves. Latvians still believe that uh, being in NATO and being in the European Union, it means something. Ben Nimmo explains those memberships are also part of what makes Moscow target them. The Baltic states advocate the EU maintaining sanctions on Russia and NATO reinforcing military might on their territory. It's easy to paint them as enemies of Russia. So, Nimmo says, Putin does.
12: Well, Putin's built his domestic reputation on the idea that he made Russia great again after the chaos of the Yeltsin years. At the moment, the economy is doing badly, mainly because of the collapse of oil prices. He needs something to give his voters, and the cheapest thing is patriotism.
11: Nimmo notes that ahead of his election, Donald Trump spoke warmly of Putin and coldly of NATO. That puts a shiver in the Baltic air on the alliance's eastern border, as no one knows what these two presidents will do next. For America Abroad, I'm Terry Schultz in Riga.
0: While Russia's military threat is very real in Latvia, what's increasingly worrisome to the United States and other countries is Russia's use of cyberspace to undermine the West. Reporter Jennifer Strong brings us this story.
10: This tiny dam sits about 15 miles north of the Bronx in a small town called Rybrook, New York. It's unremarkable, except it was hacked by Iran. Seven people working on behalf of the Revolutionary Guard tried to take control of it. They were indicted earlier this year by the Department of Justice.
8: I can't in my wildest dreams imagine why this dam was important to them.
10: That's Rybrook Mayor Paul Rosenberg.
8: Either they were horribly misinformed, and they thought that by raising and controlling the dam that they were going to unleash some sort of Noah's Ark tidal wave or that we're practicing for something on a larger extent.
10: He says the software that controls it is also used in larger and more important dams. This dam was offline at the time of the attack, so no harm came of it. But what is an appropriate response to cyber attacks from a foreign government? The short answer is, we don't really
9: know. In cybersecurity, much as in nuclear strategy in the immediate post World War II era, what actions will produce what results? are still unknown.
10: That's Zach Goldman. He's the executive director of NYU's Center on Law and Security and a former special assistant, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the Department of Defense.
9: Some people asked after the DNC hack, was that an act of war? The answer is almost certainly no. But what is a proportionate, dissuasive response to the DNC hack? Not clear. And there is no settled response to that question.
10: Figuring out exactly who is responsible for an attack is a huge problem in cyberspace. Most capabilities are secret, and attacks can be launched from anywhere. President Obama addressed the issue during a press conference when asked about the hacking accusations against Russia.
6: We have provisions in place where if we see evidence of uh, a malicious attack by a state actor, Uh, we can impose uh, potentially certain proportional penalties.
10: Article 51 of the U.N. Charter is accepted by most nations now as including cyber conflict, but only when it comes to self-defense in response to an armed cyber attack. Beyond that, the legal framework is full of gray areas. Plus, adversaries can learn a lot from your evidence against them, potentially costing those capabilities or intelligence methods in future. It means states rely on deterrence rather than prosecuting most attacks or getting into a tit-for-tat response, which can quickly escalate. John Bumgarner is the chief technology officer at the U.S. Cyber Consequences Unit. It studies possible outcomes of cyber attack, then provides the government with data and training.
0: The only
8: reason deterrence has worked in physical space, like nuclear weapons, is because it's pretty easy to track when a nuclear weapon's launched from Russia or the United States or from Britain or France. It's easy to see those weapons being launched. But in cyberspace, it's not easy to determine who that actor is launching a weapon.
10: In a military journal a few years back, one of Putin's top generals, Valery Gerasimov, talked about the idea of creating a web of chaos in thriving states using propaganda. This concept of foreign intervention is not just showing up in the U.S. Russia is also accused of using these techniques in Ukraine during their 2014 elections, and now there's concern in Germany. Jim Lutis is executive director of the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy. He also advised Secretary of State John Kerry and President Obama. Luda says Russia's tactic here seemed to be taking information and releasing it at damaging moments. The
4: narrative that was driven by Russia about the emails and the steady drip, 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 drip from WikiLeaks clearly had an impact on the campaign this year, and we can't turn a blind eye to that.
10: Luda says the actions come right out of America's Cold War playbook.
4: In the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration created a national security strategy that was predicated on winning the Cold War over a long period of time, principally by using what they called political warfare sort of exposing the rot inherent in the Soviet system, the police state, uh, lack of meaningful elections. And that was pretty much the strategy that administrations all adhered to through the end of the Cold War. And what the Russians have said with this information operation is that they're going to expose the rot within the American system.
10: Andrei Ilarianov is senior fellow with the Cato Institute and a former economic advisor to Russian President Vladimir Putin. He says... Putin wants to go back to dynamics present at the start of the Cold War.
7: That is why he's uh, repeatedly saying to uh, American leadership, okay, we recognize your sphere of interest, please recognize our sphere of interest. Maybe with a new president, Mr. Putin hopes that his offers to divide the world and you. Would get uh, much ready ear.
10: How cyber tactics or policy between the two countries might change under the new administration is anyone's guess at this point. But David Fidler at the Council on Foreign Relations says he believes Trump is unlikely to continue with a policy of deterrence towards Russia.
4: And that is certainly going to do nothing for the incentives that Russia has to continue to develop its cyber capabilities, and to continue to meddle in both our domestic and foreign affairs.
10: Regardless of how the new administration chooses to react to cyber aggression, both intelligence and defense officials say cybersecurity will remain a top priority. Tech companies, including Facebook and Google, are struggling to come up with a defense against the spread of fake news, For now, Germany's intelligence chief says Russian hackers are targeting their upcoming election. And Chancellor Angela Merkel says dealing with online attacks is a daily task for her government. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong in New York.
0: So the United States and Russia may be entering into a new period of cyber war, but the underlying issues are greater than that. What role does Russia play on the world stage And what role does the United States have in either accommodating or challenging that role? You've been listening to U.S.-Russia Relations in the Trump Era. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the NPR One or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.